your Bibles this evening. That's page 1062 in my Bible. So if you have a Cambridge New Testament or old, it's the whole complete Bible, then you might be able to find it that way. I'm going to read the first 21 verses. Verily or truly I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up another way is the same, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. But a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things uh, they were which he spoke to them. Then said Jesus to them again, Truly or verily I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go out in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming, and the wolf catches them and, and leaves the sheep, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling runs. He flees because he is a hireling. He cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be of one fold and of one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings, many of them said, He is a devil, or has a devil, and is mad. Why do you hear him? And others said, These are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? What is life like today? What does your average day look like? For me, it begins by enjoying the comforts of modern life, such as indoor plumbing, and hot water, air conditioning. I have access to refrigeration, so my breakfast drink is chilled and not lukewarm. Then I go outside and I unplug my car from the outlet on my porch. Then I travel about four miles to the church and to my office where I turn on my lights and my computer and begin working through a series of tasks to get ready for Sunday. Now, what I just described for you is a lot different from life 50 years ago. On Monday evenings, usually, I might go down to Aldi, or rather Costco, and buy some groceries, which will, my wife will supplement her purchases at Aldi or Lidl. I think she goes to Lidl more than Aldi. And once in a while, we'll go down to Walmart, or even Harris Teeter, or even Wegmans, hoping to find that soda pop they had three years ago. I haven't seen on the shelf since then. It was really good. And then, if I need clothes, I get on the internet, mostly. And they come from somewhere east, 
Turkey or the Philippines. This jacket's from the Philippines and from Vietnam. My shoes that I wear every day, they're supposed to be European, but I think they're made in China. That's life in the modern world. And it's so different from life in the ancient world. What was life like 2,000 years ago? Have you ever thought about how people lived back then? What was plumbing like in the first century? And by the way, they had plumbing. The Romans were engineers. They, they had indoor plumbing. Uh, those who are excavating Pompeii um, that has been destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius have found the leaded indoor plumbing that the Romans built there. What did people eat? I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but sometimes when we marinate a steak, do any of you put Worcestershire sauce on your steak? Anybody do that? The Romans put a sauce on their steak very similar to Worcestershire sauce. It's a, it's a raisin sauce. Um, you probably never read the ingredients on the bottle, but it is very similar to the stuff they put on, on their food. They had a fish sauce and a raisin sauce. What did people eat and, and what did they wear? It wasn't like the clothes we wear today. I, I've always kind of enjoyed going down to Catawba Springs Christian Church, walking into their vestibule of their old building and seeing the paintings of the pastors that pastored the church. You know that church is over 200 years old. The, the earliest painting they have there of one of their pastors, well, he looks like Payne Stewart used to look playing golf. He's wearing knickers and and hosiery, uh, uh, not socks, and, and uh, he would have had tails on his jacket. Uh, did any of you go to a church where the pastor wore a jacket with tails? Anybody do that? Yes, right here, okay. Well, it was different back then, 200 years ago. <laughs> Look, you walked into that one. And what was life expectancy like in the ancient world? And how did they marry? And what was family life like back then? These are just a few of literally hundreds of questions that we have to ask in order to gain some perspective on ancient backgrounds. This is a book that I have in my library. Uh, I had to read this book for a class I took years ago, and uh, I got all the way through it. It's a pretty heavy read, but it's called The Greco-Roman World of the New Testament Era by a guy named James Jeffers. And Jeffers taught at the time, I, don't, I think he's retired now, at California State University. Uh, he is a scholar of the Roman world. He, he, the book focuses on things like life and death in the ancient world and governance. You, you know, even the word ekklesia, the word for church in the New Testament, actually comes from the, the Greek governing philosophy that the people in a town, the men of the town, would come together, they would come out of their homes to vote. That was early democracy, and that was their gathering together in ecclesia. Um, so that idea of church, that we'd come out of our homes and gather together, is really the basis in the New Testament of what was going on in those Greek democracies. And then what was family life like? He describes that. He describes women's rights. And for example, food production today is so different than it was back then. Now, of course, um, food production even today is usually begins with farms in the country, not in cities. 
And it was, it was different then because the farms were usually very small. Um, a five to ten acre tract would have been considered a large farm. After harvest, the farmers would take their produce to Costco, right? They would take it to the market in the cities. Fishing didn't have a pole, didn't have a hook. It was done with nets, not lines and lures. There were banks, but they weren't very secure. You put your money there, but it might not be there later. Many people had a strong box in their home if they were wealthy. In the Roman Empire, travel was by land or sea. They couldn't even fathom traveling by air. The Romans were engineers. They built thousands of roads. Do you know in England now there's a road still in use that the Romans built originally? It's been, of course, repaired over the years, but the foundation of the road, it's Roman. They were great engineers. They built these roads, thousands of miles of roads, mostly for military reasons. That's how their army would get there. Some of them are still in use. And in France, in fact, you can go over the Gard River and you can see an, um, uh, an aqueduct that the Romans actually built themselves. This goes back 17, 1800 years. Most people walked wherever they went. Richer people had donkeys and camels to carry them places, but most people walked. The very richest had carriages. Uh, they would be carried about, or chariots. Inns, or hotels, the ancient equivalent of a hotel, was just a house. There would have been some rooms in the house on the second floor. The first floor would have been where you keep your animals. The second floor would have had, had rooms. Of course, when Mary and Joseph got to uh, Bethlehem, there was no room in the house, no room in the inn. It wasn't a hotel like we. I thought of when, when I heard that word as a child, when I, you know, they had hotels. It was a, a holiday inn in Bethlehem. Now, it wasn't like that. And when there was no room in the inn, it means there was no room on the upper level of the house where the guests would have slept. They would have had to go down where the animals were sleeping on the first floor. But 10 miles apart, they would have these inns, these houses where people would, weary travelers would try to find shelter. If you think about it, People haven't changed, but the way people live has changed based on, mainly on technological advances throughout history. We fight wars differently. We have different entertainments. We communicate differently, and we travel a whole lot differently. Life is different, even if it's the same, because we're people are people. We do have some things in common with our counterparts. We breathe. We have to eat. We have to drink. We wear clothes. A lot different. We have closets. They didn't. We have diseases and accidents and injuries. They had diseases, accidents, and injuries. We age, they aged. We have families, they had families. And then we die, and they are already dead. But if you want to understand your Bible, if you want to understand it well, you have to begin thinking and understanding what life was like in the ancient world. There are so many places through the Old Testament and New Testament where as you're reading, you'll come to something that you will not understand unless you know something of life in the ancient world. It, it's, uh, it's a shame that that's true, but there's really no other way to have a written record. There's just no way the writers of Scripture could have anticipated airplanes or iPhones or iPads. It's just not possible. So as I read this text in front of me, and I chose I, what I think is a pretty easy passage but one that is a little foreign to us 
because nobody here is a shepherd. And we have terms here that because we've heard sermons on Psalm 23, we sang some shepherd songs tonight. It's That lingo is pretty common in Christian vernacular. Because of that, we, we understand something of this text, but you really don't understand the ancient world. You're never going to fully grasp what John is writing about. But funny thing is, the original audience would have understood immediately what he was saying. We have the word sheepfold in verse 1, for example. I've actually seen a sheepfold live uh, while I was in the Persian Gulf. I saw a shepherd putting his sheep into a pen, an outdoor pen. The idea here is a courtyard of some kind that's uncovered, and it was a place for keeping sheep. Then you have in verse 2, a shepherd. And shepherds were people who herd animals. A shepherd, right? They herd animals. And in this case, it's sheep. And in Israel, the shepherds led their flocks. In fact, you read about um, the he leads his flock like a shepherd. The That idea comes from ancient Israel. It's interestingly enough, the pagan people who lived around Israel tended to drive their flocks from behind. So even that bit of information becomes important. They were protectors of the animals, particularly from wild animals who preyed upon the sheep. Sheep are prey animals, you understand, like bunnies. You know, We have a bunny, uh, uh, bunnies all over our yard now in the areas around our house. And in the summertime, you'll be sitting out on the back porch and the little bunnies will finally be out in the next couple of months, and you'll see the grass and these two tiny little ears right above the grass, you know, a little bunny down there eating. Well, there are cats also who roam the neighborhood who like to catch the bunnies, and uh, they're not very nice to the bunnies. The bunnies are prey animals. They're, they just, um, they're made there to be food for the cats, I guess, or whatever else is living up on the food chain. And in fact, we have a stone, little stone bunny in our backyard, and it we watched a cat stalk the bunny, thinking it was a real rabbit, and uh, with great amusement. I mean, this cat was down all the way on the ground and just crawling across the ground. He looked like a, a Marine with his rifle, you know, going underneath the barbed wire. This is what this cat was doing, and he got right up on it. And then it was just the look of realization. This is fake. And then I, if a cat could blush, I'm telling you this cat blushed. And we were laughing uproariously. And I have never seen that cat again. He won't dare show his face in our backyard. He's too, too ashamed, I think. The shepherds would bring their sheep into enclosure, that sheepfold at night, and then would count them to see if any of them were lost. By the way, the Romans and the Greeks hated shepherds. They considered shepherds to be dirty and smelly. Jeffers talks about here in this book, Aristotle said they were, uh, of shepherds, they were lazy, leading a life of, uh, idleness. Romans believed them also to be thieves and highway robbers. And later in this text, we're going to have the phrase door of the sheep. The, the enclosure of this pen would be a door of some kind that provided an opening where the sheep could exit or enter and provided some security at night. In verse 3, we have the word porter. If you have a modern translation, it probably says gatekeeper. Or in, in modern parlance, this would be the equivalent of a janitor. He's literally a door watcher. And then in verse 12, we have a hireling. 
and a hireling is a hired hand. Somebody who is a day laborer who has been hired to help shepherds in times when there's a lot of extra work going on. Now, like I said before, because we've heard sermons like on this topic, we, we already know some of these words. But when you go through the rest of Scripture, there's going to be a lot of places where you don't know the words. You don't understand the background of some of these things. You probably already know that shepherd life, because of references to shepherds in the Old Testament. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac, Jacob were shepherds. The nation of Israel were shepherds. King David was a shepherd. He wrote the shepherd psalm on Psalm 23. Even the prophet Amos was a shepherd. And all of that information really helps us better understand what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 10. So I want you to consider the text now. What is Jesus saying in John 10? Number one, Jesus uses a common example as a metaphor that describes eternal relationships. The relationship he's describing is between a shepherd and his sheep. Look again between verses 1 and 5. He says to them, this is a truth. Whoever enters not by the door into the sheepfold is a thief and a robber. But he that enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the, the porter, that's the gatekeeper, he opens the door and the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. And he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. And he puts forth his sheep and they follow they go uh, behind him, for they know his voice. And the stranger? No, they're not going to follow him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Now those here in the text who are the sheep are those who have eternal life in Christ. They have actually a name that the shepherd knows. Have you ever thought about this? God actually knows your name. They recognize his voice. And these sheep follow their shepherd, and they'll follow no one else. You see, they, the sheep know the Lord. They recognize it when the Lord is speaking to them. Don't we do that as well? When we read the words of Scripture, do you not recognize the Lord speaking to you? They refuse to follow anyone else. And I think that's significant because, you see, sheep don't know the voice of strangers. They run from strangers. But there are people here who have no relationship with the shepherd. They're described in verse 1 as thieves and robbers. There are people who enter into the sheepfold, not through the door, but they try to climb over the wall. And they want to lead the sheep astray. They speak to them as if they're a shepherd, but they're not shepherds. It's a false voice. And I think what Jesus is describing here is the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep, but greater, his relationship that he has with his own. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now that relationship is the basis of eternal life. Look again at verse 6 through verse 14. Jesus, Jesus spake this parable to them, but they understood not the things which he spoke to them. Now I find that very interesting, by the way, because they understood the metaphor perfectly better than we do. They lived in a shepherding world in the ancient times, but they couldn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand the meaning behind the words. So Jesus said to them again, I am the door of the sheep, and all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if any man enter in, 
he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now you'll notice Jesus describes himself in two ways. In verse 7 and verse 9, he says that he is actually the door of the sheepfold. That picture is that through him, the sheep enter into the enclosure that it's, he's provided for them. Friends, that's, that's our salvation. We enter into a relationship with God through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we have this idea of eternal life. We enter eternal life through Jesus by entering by him. The individual is saved, verse 9, and the sheep enjoys then the comfort and security of the shepherd. He provides that for them. As David wrote, he takes us by the streams of water and by the, the grass where we can feed. He provides for them. Then you keep reading in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. That's the second way he designates himself. He says, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd who's owned the sheep or not, he sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and he runs. He flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He doesn't care for the sheep. So in this second designation that Jesus makes of himself, he says, I am the one who is known by my sheep. And what, do, what does that shepherd do? He actually cares for the sheep. And he gives his life for the sheep. And this is the truth. Nobody cares for us like Jesus. Like the song writer wrote, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. I found in him a friend so kind and true. Nobody ever cared for me like Jesus. Jesus is the one who cares for us. He's willing to die, he says, for his sheep. Now, that's Jesus, but he describes his enemies in a couple of ways. They are thieves and robbers again. Verse 1, they try to enter the fold going in over the wall. Getting over the wall, they call out to the sheep, but the sheep refuse to hear them. And who are they? What are they there to do, verse 10? To steal and to kill and to destroy. They have no interest in the agenda of the sheepfold and the agenda of the shepherd. Even worse, besides the thieves and robbers, some of his enemies, they're hirelings. They don't care about the sheep at all. They're willing to watch the sheep for money. I know it's hard to believe this, but there are actually people who pastor churches because of the money. I, I heard of a church in Richmond. And they, this is probably 10 years ago. They lost their pastor. And um, one of the ladies in the church came to me and my sister's church in Richmond lost their pastor. And she asked... What about your pastor? And I told her, no, you keep away from our pastor. Oh, that's very nice of you. And I said, I have no interest in going to Richmond. And she said, well, you didn't hear. They're offering $150,000 at this church. I still don't have an interest in going to Richmond. Well, if you do it for the money, then how does the Bible describe you? You're a hireling. And you don't care for the sheep. They're not owners of the sheep. They have no vested interest in protecting the sheep. And when danger arises, verse 12, they run. They head for the hills. They're not about to risk their lives for the dirty, smelly sheep. They don't care about them at all, verse 13. And I, I think Jesus here is clarifying 
that there are only two positions where one can be in this life. You can either be one of his sheep or you are not. There really is no other place. And if you are not one of his, well, then you can be a false teacher, you could be a hireling, or you could be an, an animal that's just not part of his sheepfold. But the worst thing there is you're in danger of following after the voice of false shepherds. And there are eternal consequences to these relationships. If you know Jesus, then you're eternally part of his sheepfold. You're eternally part of his flock. And there's a blessing. But if you're not one of his, then you're separated from him and you have no relationship with him. Now in the ancient world, like I said, the audience would immediately understood even better than I've explained this metaphor of a shepherding way of life. Jesus uses this example, sheep and shepherds, to explain these positions that one finds himself. And you should know right away which one you are. Are you one of his sheep? Are you? Or are you a thief or a hireling? Or are you a sheep that follows the voice of a thief or a hireling? Well, with this example of shepherding in mind, then Jesus uses the illustration to further confirm the identities of those in his audience. So the first thing we see here is this metaphor explaining eternal relationships. Now Jesus goes one step further, even as they're not understanding him, and says, okay, let's, let's confirm if you are one of his or not. So in doing this, Jesus does two things, or two things are occurring here, rather. The first thing Jesus does, the second thing is a response the people do. The first thing here Jesus does is he confirms his own identity. If, if there's any confusion in the part of the people listening to Jesus as he's teaching in parable, parabolic form, they understand the metaphor, they can't understand the meaning, they're struggling to understand it. Jesus says, well, let me be very clear who I am. He says, as the Father knows me, and they know who the Father is, Jehovah, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, verse 15. And other sheep I have, not of this fold, but then them also I must bring that they hear my voice, that they may be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, I lay it down of myself, I have power to lay it down, power to take it again, this commandment I have received of my Father. So Jesus states his relationship to God the Father, and it stresses here this familial relationship in the Godhead, that there's a God the Father and a God the Son. We know there's also God the Holy Spirit. But clearly, between Father and Son, there's this kind of relationship that we understand in a family sense. And this stresses the intimacy in the Godhead. I know Him, Jesus says. He knows me. And that knowledge then forms the basis, the foundation, as it were, for the relationship that Jesus has with His own. Remember, he says in verse 15, a good shepherd hazards his life for his sheep. He says, I lay my life down for my sheep. Not just even the sheep that they, they were aware of. He says, I have sheep not even of this fold. And the Mormons believe this is a reference to the Native Americans and to themselves. I'm not making that up. That's their interpretation of this passage. They think if you, if you go to Salt Lake, you'll see... Uh, this kind of imagery and this kind of language in different places. But they believe that what Jesus is talking about is that 
uh, after they'll say after his resurrection, he actually came to North America and preached the, the Mormon faith to the Native Americans. This is entirely made up, you understand. There is no historical basis at all in this. And they have no historical facts to back this up. It's just made up out of whole cloth. But Jesus says, I have sheep from other fold. And I think most likely it's just a reference to Gentiles. At that time, most of the sheep that Jesus is talking about, they would have been Jews. His ministry was primarily to the Jewish people. He commissioned his disciples and then later 70 to go out and to reach the Jews with the gospel of the kingdom. And then after his resurrection, he says, now go to the whole world. Make disciples of the nations. But he, I think then when you read some passages in the New Testament, it makes sense that the church became a mix of Jew and Gentile together. And he says there's one fold and one shepherd. The head of the church is Jesus. He's the great shepherd. I'm an under shepherd. I shepherd under his authority. So I'm, not, of course, not the king or ruler of this church. That's ludicrous, even though some pastors kind of present themselves that way. I, I serve at the pleasure of the Lord. And as long as people are willing to follow the teaching of the word as I deliver it. Jesus further states his identity of Messiah. He says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. This is all very messianic. This is coming right out of the Old Testament. But, but this idea of giving up my life for my sheep, you almost get that sense of what he's talking about from the second or the last portion of Isaiah. Well, the identities of Jesus, he confirms his own identity, but at the same time, John then records the response of the audience. The identities of the audience then confirm their response to Jesus, who they are. There's division now among the Jews of verse 19, and many of them say, well, this guy's crazy. He's mad. He has a devil. Then others say, these aren't the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Well, some of the Jews in Jesus' audience were Jesus deniers. They didn't understand what he was saying because it's spiritually discerned. They had no knowledge. There is, a, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, a veil put over their eyes. So even though the light of the gospel is shining, they can't see it. The veil is put over them. But we have here this idea of them saying he's, he's actually mad. He's possessed of a demon. Friends, that, that is really close to what is later called the unpardonable sin. Scribing the works of Jesus to Satan. Well, other people are there. They're open to him, right? They're not necessarily his followers. I don't, I don't know that this means these people follow Jesus, but they do have a couple of good questions here. They wonder first, is it possible to, uh, for a madman to say the words that this man has said? If you go back and you read like through the Gospel of Matthew, some of those times Jesus is speaking and people are just wondering at his words. He speaks as one who has authority, not as the scribes. Jesus' preaching ministry was so powerful, so incredible. And I think then because of that, they're evaluating Jesus and they say, this is not how a madman speaks. We've heard mad people. We've heard demon-possessed people before. And then they ask, of course, how, how is it that he can heal the blind? That actually, if you've been reading through John, comes from the previous chapter. John 9 is when he heals the blind man. And, and I think later in this 
chapter, chapter 10, Jesus talks about the works that the Father gave him to do. He says, you believe me because of my works. All of this is the idea of healing the blind. And so I think what's happening here is his audience is actually saying there are people, many of them, it says, who says, no, he's crazy, he's mad, he's demon-possessed, we want nothing to do with him. But there are some there who are saying, I actually don't think that's true. This is not how a madman speaks. And mad people, demon-possessed people, don't heal blind people. And it shows some rationality on the part of the members of the audience. Now, there's a big section that's coming to a close here in John's Gospel, and I'm going to kind of conclude with this idea in just a moment. A couple practical things and we're done. John 7, verse 1 through chapter 10 and verse 21 is a big section where Jesus has been speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you go back to John 7, you kind of get that. He says there was, a, there was during that time the Feast of Tabernacles. That's between September and mid-October. The very next verse, verse 22, says that it's the Feast of Dedication. By the way, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of three biblical feasts of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 16, 16 tells them they're to celebrate three feasts. What's the Feast of Dedication? Anybody know right offhand? What's, it's Hanukkah. And did your study Bible say that or did you know that right off? Oh, that's good. That's very, I didn't know that. I had to look it up. So you have one on me. That's good. Uh, that comes in, of course, late November, early December. And so you have Hanukkah. This is not a biblical feast. It actually starts around 198 B.C. But, but it's a time that the writer is recognizing is something the Jewish people were doing. And so if you, if you think about this, in chapter 7 all the way through chapter 10, now Jesus has been preaching. So how interesting. Chapter 7, verse 31, many of the people believed on him. Chapter 7, verse 40 and 41, others said, this is the Christ. Chapter 8 and verse 30, as he was speaking, many believed on him. So all throughout, Jesus is preaching public ministry. He's preaching the truths about himself. And I think here, at the end of this, what's two things are being confirmed. There's a group of people who absolutely have rejected Jesus Christ. Those are the leaders of Israel. That's being confirmed by John. These people want nothing to do with Jesus. They consider him to be demon-possessed. But there is a group of people following Jesus. Even after what he said in John 6 about eat, drinking my blood, eating my flesh, and all that kind of stuff where everybody left him, there's still a group now following Jesus again in this part of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is teaching them, and they are listening because they believed on him. So again, are you one of the Lord's sheep? Do you believe in him? And notice the focus here. I, I think it's very interesting. We, we, we've, been, we've become so inundated with personal evangelism where we want to teach people how to pray, to accept Jesus as Savior. I think we do that to our own detriment sometimes because the focus in the New Testament is so often in believing. We are believing to obey him. We are believing to depend upon him. And so it's even more than just saying a prayer. Or as my senior Bible teacher in high school would say, even dead people have birth certificates. You can hold it up and say, I was born on this day, but you might be dead. And I think there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, a lot. I hope not in our church, but there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are spiritually dead. Because they were told, just pray this prayer and you'll get to heaven. No, you have to be one of his sheep. You have to be part of his flock. 
Now, just practically as we conclude, let me give you some ideas of how to study ancient backgrounds. You say, okay, pastor, you did that. That seemed pretty easy for you. How did you do that? Well, I went to school and had to read this book. You know, that's kind of how it starts. You have to read books about this kind of thing. But there are some things that you can have that will be helpful to you if you're reading a passage of Scripture and you don't know what's being said or you don't fully grasp it. I would recommend first a Bible handbook. Haley's Bible handbook is pretty simple. Um, it's, really, it's a layman's level. Unger's Bible handbook. MacArthur now sells a Bible handbook that uh, has been compiled by many of the faculty there at the Master's Seminary in California. Um, and that will go through the chapters of the Bible. And if you're at a place where you don't fully understand what's being said, you can flip to the chapter of the Bible and give a little explanation of that chapter, and you might get a better understanding of what the background is. You can also buy Bible geography books. I've got about four or five of these in my library, in my office, and, and these are really fun to read. But you can get a Bible geography book, and uh, I mean, if... if the Bible were written and it talked about Fuquay and Apex and Holly Springs. I wouldn't have any trouble at all, right? But it starts talking about all these cities like Jericho and uh, Bethel. And I go, where? Where were they again? And if you don't know Bible geography, you're going to just be lost. What the original audience would have known immediately. Oh, I've been to all those places just about. We, we struggle because we don't know. them. Bible archaeology is a good book to get. Um, uh, there, these are also available online, a lot of these resources. Hebrew history, and I think um, getting some understanding from an outside source on, on Hebrew history is so helpful to understand how the Jews, uh, the Jewish world existed. But can I give you the last one? Just read the Old Testament. You say, you're telling me i got to buy all these books. Okay, let's say you don't buy all these books. Just read the Old Testament. Because so many of the questions that you have in reading your New Testament are answered when you read the Old Testament. I can't tell you how many Christians tell me that they only have their devotions in the New Testament. I, get, I hear all the time, well, I, I get bogged down in the Chronicles and I get really bogged down in Job because all those speeches, they're hard to listen to or read. And then you get into the prophets. And I'm going to tell you, if you read all the minor prophets, you're going to get to Malachi and you're going to think you're unsaved. It doesn't matter who you are, right? Because <laughs> it's just one negative thing after another just about. So you, you understand people just say, I don't want to read the Old Testament. I know pastors who never preach out of the Old Testament or rarely do. They spend all their time, well, the New Testament's for the church. I'm going to preach on the New Testament. It's a grand mistake. Read your Old Testament. Much of the idea of shepherding, you can get, glean so much information out of the Old Testament. And as you read that, it becomes clearer what the Bible is saying. All right, let's close in prayer. Father.